Best-selling, much-beloved crime fiction author J.A. Jance has more than 60 books in three different series to her name, and she's still going strong. She's made feisty, independent female leads like Arizona Sheriff Joanna Brady and news anchor-turned-investigator Ellie Reynolds into international reader favourites. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on the show today, J.A. explains why she uses that pen name, J.A., rather than her given birth name, Judith, and she talks about the day her first husband hitchhiked home with a serial killer 20 minutes after he'd committed his last crime, and how, in a roundabout way, helped launch her writing career. We've got three of J.A.'s latest books to give away to three lucky readers. You can enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Before we get to J.A., though, I've just got an exciting bit of news. Binge Reading is now on Patreon. For as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can become a Patreon supporter for Binge Reading and get fortnightly exclusive content on hot new books you won't want to put down, as well as updates from your favourite authors. But now, here's J.A. Hello there, J.A., and welcome to the show. It's good to have you with us. Well, I'm really happy to be here. I am delighted to know that I have fans in your neck of the woods, and I would like to have more fans in your neck of the woods. So let's hope this little chat helps that happen. Surely. Look, you've got an amazing backlist. You've got 60 books or more published in three series, all in crime fiction, two focused on officers of the law, and one a news anchor turned mystery solver. So the officers of the law are Detective J.P. Beaumont, and there was a huge Beaumont series. Then we've got Arizona County Sheriff Joanna Brady and a big series involving her. And now Ellie Reynolds, the news anchor. Tell me, what keeps your creative fires burning? Because obviously this has been a life's work and you're still fully engaged in it. Well, what keeps me fresh is the fact that I don't just have one character. The Walker Family series, there are five of those. I wrote nine Beaumont books in a row. I was tired of him, threatened to knock him off. My editor said, write something else. So I wrote the first Walker Family book, Hour of the Hunter. When I went back to Beaumont, it was was fun again. And so at that point, my editor said, well, come up with another series. So the Beaumont books are written in the first person, through J.P. Beaumont's point of view. I, this, I know this sounds like Agatha Christie, but I met him on a train. I had written a first novel that never sold to anybody, primarily because it was 1,400 pages long. But when, uh, when my agent suggested I write something that was set in Seattle, I tried, and I couldn't get that story to move. It just, it wouldn't go forward. I worked on it for about six months, and finally, my kids were little then. I sent them off to camp for 
spring break, and I got on a train to go visit with a friend who lives in, lived in Portland. And I got on the train armed with a stack of blue line notebooks and a whole fistful of ballpoint pens. And as the train pulled out of the King Street station, I thought, what would happen if I wrote this book through the detective's point of view? So I got out a notebook and I got out a pen and I wrote, she might have been a cute kid once. That was hard to tell now. She was dead. And as soon as I wrote that, I was there at the crime scene on the back side, the far side of Magnolia Bluff. I was walking around the crime scene in Bo's shoes. I was hearing, seeing the crime scene through his eyes. I was hearing what he heard. I heard what people said to him. I heard what he said to others. But I also heard what was going on in his head. And Bo and I have been author and character in that fashion from 1983 on. When I needed to put a cold case detective into the new Alley book, Unfinished Business, Bo has aged over those years. He started out as a middle-aged male homicide cop, and he and I gave him my birthday so I wouldn't forget how old he is. In retirement now, he's working cold cases, and I thought, I'll just use him in this Alley Reynolds book. But uh, guess what? The Beaumonts, the Bradys, and the Walkers all belong to HarperCollins, and the Alleys belong to Simon and Schuster. They're sort of like, they're big publishing houses, but they're sort of like the Capulets and the Montagues from Romeo and Juliet. They know each other, but they don't really get along. So I negotiated a peace treaty to let Bo make a guest appearance in this Simon and Schuster book. When, when my editor suggested that I write something else, when I wrote the Joanna Brady series, I wrote that in third person because it's not nearly as demanding as writing in the first person is. And the same thing happened later when I added Allie into the mix. So when I was writing Unfinished Business, I assumed that since Bo was going to be in the book, he would be in the third person along with everybody else. I was really wrong about that because when it was time for J.P. Beaumont to show up, he turned up first person or nothing. <laughs> he wasn't in the first person. He wasn't doing a thing in that book. So he's in his first person voice in an otherwise third person book. But that's what keeps me fresh, having different locales to use, different sets of characters and the... What I like about a series is that you have time to watch the characters develop and change over time. In the most recent Joanna Brady book, Jenny is, when we first met her in Desert Heat, she was nine years old and quite precocious because she just figured out that there weren't quite enough months between her parents' anniversary and her birthday, and she asked her mom if she was a preemie, which, of course, she was not. But now we see her as a, a sophomore at Northern Arizona University, and she's developed into this capable, responsible, caring young woman. And I've seen her develop as the writer, but my characters have seen her grow, grow up as readers, or my readers have seen her grow up from the other side of the page. 
Yes, that's right. Now, it fascinates me that you say that this detective came into your head in the first person. Did you have any family that were detectives or any connection with the police at all when this happened? My only connection with police occurred in 1970 when my husband was given a ride home. We were working on an Indian reservation. We lived 30 miles from where we worked and another 30 miles from where we lived into Tucson. I had to stay late after school, and my, we were having company that night. So my husband went out and hitchhiked to get home to be there to greet our company. And on the reservation, there's no such thing as mass transit. Everybody hitchhiked, including the nuns from Tapawa. But it happened that the guy who gave him a ride home that day was a serial killer who murdered people at 20 minutes after two on the 22nd day of the month. And he gave my husband a ride home about 45 minutes after forcing his third victim off the highway at gunpoint, shooting her, raping her in front of her two small children and leaving her to die. And so we discovered that incident when we were going into town for dinner and were stopped at a roadblock. We heard someone talking about a man in a green car. And my husband said, a green car? I wonder if that's the guy who gave me a ride home today. And it turned out it was. So we were part of that investigation from the very beginning. We, we didn't have a phone. We lived seven miles to the nearest neighbor and or telephone. And when we told the deputy who we were and where we lived, we went in, into town with our, our company and had dinner. But the next morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, Jack Lyons, who was Pima County's chief homicide investigator at the time, came to our house and he interviewed my husband from 6 o'clock in the morning until 3.30 in the afternoon. And I, I listened to that whole interview. And when I went to write that first book, the one that was never published, <laughs> I could recall that interview almost verbatim. That's one of the reasons... <laughs> The book was so long, and it's one of the reasons the book never sold. <laughs> <laughs> but what an extraordinary, I mean, that little thing, 20 minutes after two on the 21st, that is something you couldn't make up. Well, if you made it up, people might think, oh, how well, extreme. That's, that's the, the editors who turned, it was, I thinly fictionalized the story, but the editors who turned it down said the stuff that was fiction was fine. And the stuff that was real would never happen, even though it already had. So, yes, the editor yeah. said this couldn't possibly happen. But in the process of writing 1,400 pages, I wasn't allowed in the creative writing program at the University of Arizona in 1964 because, as the professor told me, I was a girl. So writing those 1,400 pages was my on-the-job training in writing. And writing 1,400 pages is the same as writing three full-length novels. And yeah. so in doing that, I learned how to do pacing. I learned how to do plotting. I learned how to do uh, scene setting. I learned how to do dialogue. I learned all of those skills that you have to become a writer. And so when I went to write, when I got to Portland on the train after starting with those two sentences, if you read Until Proven Guilty, which is still in print today, it's, it's so old, it's historical fiction now. But those are the sentences that still start that book. She might have been a cute kid once. That was hard to tell now. 
she was dead. But in the course of the next five days, I wrote 30,000 words by hand. I had blisters on my writing fingers because I had constructed the book in my head, but I had to find the point of view from which to tell the story. Look, that's wonderful. Just backing back a bit, let's just explain to listeners why you're using this pen name, J.A., because that also has something to do with the way that women authors were viewed when you started out. Tell us that story. When I gave my agent the manuscript for Until Proven Guilty, the uh, title page said Until Proven Guilty by Judith A. Jans, Judith Ann Jans. My agent had worked in New York Publishing, and she understood the dynamics of how female authors were viewed. And so before she sent that manuscript to New York, she changed the title page to read Until Proven Guilty by J.A. Jans. The second editor who saw that manuscript called her up and said, boy, the guy who wrote Until Proven Guilty is a good writer. And she said, what would you say if I told you the guy who wrote Until Proven Guilty is a woman? He said, I'd say she was a hell of a good writer. So he, he bought Until Proven Guilty as the first book in a series. I thought I had written a standalone. I had no idea it was a series. And so they bought it. Time passed. Marketing got a hold of it. And they said, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Male readers are not going to accept a police procedural written by somebody named Judy. We're going to use your initials. Well, I'm from a small mining town in Arizona. I was being published by a New York publishing house. I didn't care if they used my initials. So I said, fine. And that's how J.A. Jance came into existence. For the first nine Beaumont books, there was no author bio. There was no author photo. And that gave rise to the rumor that a retired Seattle homicide cop writes these books. When they started putting my picture on the books, I thought they would change. that rumor would change. It did, but only slightly. They said, J.A. Jantz is a retired homicide cop, and she's just a front for him. But the wonderful thing about J.A. Jantz is I always sign my books in red ink. I've been doing that from book three on. And it's a lot easier to write J.A. Jantz than it would be Judith and Jantz. So by having only my initials, it has saved me miles of red ink over over the years. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, over this very extensive career, have you noticed a change in the attitude both towards having female police officers as the central character and female authors? Has there been a change in that? I can tell you that as of about five years ago, of the sheriffs in the United States of America, of the 1,800 sheriffs, 14 of them were women, and five of them were fans of my books. <laughs> I, I want to say one more thing that, that strikes me as interesting about my initials. From 1985 on, when my first book was published, on the bookshelves in both bookstores and libraries, who is my next-door neighbor? P.D. James, Phyllis Dorothy James, who had to use her initials for many of the same reasons I did only a whole generation and a half earlier. Yes, yes, that's right. And there are still people who are just launching today who are, are using their initials. It still is there as a bit of a... Um... Well, I, I have fans who removed... Once, once the cover photo was there, that sort of took away the mystery... 
but they had husbands who didn't read books by women authors. And so they took the cover off and gave them to them and they read them anyway. <laughs> now, in both series, you have a fascinating amount of true life detail. You, you, I love books like yours where you have information about the latest developments in DNA, DNA technology and you get insights into how unscrupulous people can hack innocent girls and cause them a huge amount of grief. All of these things are there in the stories that I read, the, these two latest books. I wonder if this is a passion of yours and if perhaps also your background as a librarian has helped you with this very in-depth research. Well, my background as a librarian has certainly helped me. But one thing that is really important in my becoming a writer is my birth order. I'm from a family of seven children. My two older sisters, Janice and Jeannie, were two years apart. And then there was a four-year gap, and I came along. And then after me, there was another four-year gap before my three brothers and my baby sister came along. And what that meant is in this family of seven kids, I was sort of an only child because I was too young to play with the older kids, and too old to play with the younger ones. And that turned me into an observer as opposed to a participant. And being an observer is another important skill for someone who wants to be a writer because I've gone through life picking up details, observing details that I've been able to put into my books. My, my one brother, Jim, died 20 years ago. This month, he was a firefighter in my hometown, Bisbee, Arizona. He was a fireman of the year, two years in a row. He rescued any number of people who would have died without him. And yet he was swimming in the ocean on vacation. He suffered a heart attack from an undiagnosed heart ailment and died. And the city of Bisbee gave him a fallen officer treatment. That was my first experience with fallen officer memorials. That was in June. And of course, 9-11 happened a few months later, and then we all went to fallen officer memorials. But I used what I learned from that in the book Damage Control when Joanna Brady, my Cochise County Sheriff, loses an officer. So I, I, I think being an observer and picking up on people and understanding them. I, my first husband, who was pretty much useless as husband material, was <laughs> he died of chronic alcoholism at age 42, a year and a half after I divorced him. But for the 18 years I was with him, I, I kept trying to figure out what made the guys in the bars so much more interesting to him than I was. So I went to the bars with him and I listened to how those people talked and I tried to understand what made those guys tick. And when it came time to write Beaumont's point of view, I just sent my head back to those bars and wrote away. My husband, after I divorced him, he subsequently died of chronic alcoholism at age 42. You have to work really hard to die of booze that early. But when I started writing Beaumont, I put that bit of knowledge. I knew a lot about drinking. And, you know, you're supposed to write what you know. So I put that into the books. And I wrote it so true to life that by the fourth book, my readers were pointing out that J.P. Beaumont had a drinking problem. And I hadn't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it was my being an observer and standing on the sidelines gathering information to put into what my second husband calls, he's, he claims I have a wearing blender in my head and stuff goes into my head one way and it comes out through my fingers another way. But that, that first husband, although he was sort of useless as husband material, <laughs> from the point of view of a mystery writer, the man was a gold mine. <laughs> Now, it's interesting to me, why did you even choose crime as your genre in the first place? Because that's what I always read. Okay. I yeah. read, um, I started out with Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, and I just never got over it. <laughs> but one of my favorites for many years was John D. MacDonald. However, eventually I started objecting to the fact that John D. MacDonald never seemed to get any older. He never seemed to get any smarter. And... He'd meet one pretty girl, and she'd cause him all kinds of trouble. And the next thing you'd know, he'd be involved with another pretty girl who would cause him all kinds of trouble. And that's why when I started writing these series, I made the decision to let my characters age and grow and change instead of always being the same. When I first writing the Joanna Brady books, I expected she would turn out to be an amateur detective. But I had written police procedurals for so long that when she started asking questions about the investigation into her first husband's death, I kept telling her, you can't do that. You're not a cop. You can't ask that. So I finally gave up. And by the end of that first book, she's running for the office of sheriff in her husband's stead. When Ellie Reynolds came along, she was a former news broadcaster, and she's actually my only amateur sleuth. She and her people solve crimes and they do it with technology. You asked about AI. I'm a liberal arts major and my husband is a retired electronics engineer, my, my second husband of 35 years. We met the week before my first book was published. We met at a widowed retreat where we discovered our first spouses had died on the same day of the year, two years apart. They both died on New Year's Eve. We struck up a conversation based on that coincidence on the 21st of June. When we got married on the 21st of December. <laughs> I think people thought we were in such a rush because maybe we were in a family way. But we were in such a rush because we both had our, our plans and dreams for the future blow up in our faces. And we didn't know how much time we had and we didn't want to waste a moment of it. But he's a retired electronics engineer. He built the first gray brick cell phone for Motorola in 1968. And he, a few years ago, he said, you know, AI is kind of interesting. You should maybe write a book about that. And I said, AI, me? I'm a liberal arts major. I don't know anything about AI. But he started giving me little pieces of drips and drabs of information. And those drips and drabs went into my head, went through the wearing blender, and they came out through my fingertips as Frigg, the pet AI, and yeah. the alley around. This is this remarkable, for people who haven't yet read any of the books, a remarkable sort of search engine that this private agency that Ellie is one of the principals of, they can put anything in there. They can get the um, standard view, or they can get the view where they actually access all sorts of information. They probably shouldn't, but it really helps them privately with solving crimes. So. That search engine was trained to be the partner of a, 
a wannabe serial killer. So they're having a hard time teaching Frigg to co- learn to colour inside the lines. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that takes me right back to the beginning. I did mean to ask you, that serial killer that your husband hitched a ride with, did they catch him straight away or how, how soon was he apprehended? My husband provided information about things that were in the car. There was a, a shredded check, personal check. That he recognized the bank stock because it was the same bank we used. There was only one bank in Tucson that was open on Saturdays. And if you lived out of town, that was the bank you used. And during that remarkable eight-hour interview from six o'clock until three o'clock, actually, it, that's, that's more than eight hours. That's more like 10 hours. Um, Jack Lyons got my husband to remember all kinds of details, including the name, the first name on the signature line of that check. And so it was Carol. So the next day, the, okay, that was Saturday. On Sunday, we met Jack in town and we went around and we went to car dealerships until my husband was able to say he had been given a ride home with in a green Maverick. On Monday, we went back to the sheriff's office and he did a composite drawing. And as soon as the little boy, the four-year-old boy who had been with his mother when that happened, saw the composite drawing, he said, that's the man who killed my mommy. And so by early the following week, Jack Lyons went to uh, the bank. He got a list of all the joint accounts with that first name. Then he went to the Department of Licensing, got a list of all the green mavericks, and he found the one that was on both lists. So he knew within a matter of days who the killer was, but he figured out at that point that he was dealing with a serial killer. The guy had shot a 16-year-old girl off a bicycle. He had shot a 40-something-year-old man off a bulldozer and the 28-year-old woman going to Mexico for the weekend with her kids. But Jack didn't, he wanted to get all of his ducks in a row before he took the guy into custody. So he suggested maybe we should go live someplace else. Well, we were young, we were stupid. We said, well, this is where we live. What if you never catch him? Uh, So my husband worked construction for a lot of, uh, during the summers. I had a 12-month teaching contract on the reservation. So while he was out of town, I lived on the hill by myself. I wore a loaded weapon. I was fully prepared to use it. I actually did use it. One day, I shot all six. It was a revolver. I fired all six shots at a rapidly retreating rattlesnake. He was still laughing when he went over the wall and got away. But we had a rope pull pump and on our well, and I was able to get the pump started. Well, if you can, when, it, when I put that, that weapon on, I, I didn't kill the rattlesnake, but rattlesnakes are hard to shoot. I figured the killer was would present a larger target, and I was motivated. And once I made the decision, if it's him or me, it's by God going to be him, I think that was the beginning of my understanding what police officers do every single day. And once you've made that decision, you can't unring the bell. You can't, you've made, you've switched a toggle switch in your soul and you're a different person. And after that, they picked him up on the 20th of July. Jack Lyons was concerned that the incidents were getting closer together. He took my husband to San Manuel, another mining town. He identified the killer as he came off shift. 
the killer road in the back of the car with my husband and Jack back into Tucson. And on the way, he admitted to having been to our house on three separate occasions in the intervening 30 days, 60 days, and we had been scheduled to be July 22nd. My goodness. And had he killed anyone between your husband's ride and when they arrested him? No, no. The other two no. events were earlier. So that happened yeah. in June, in May of 1970. In January, not January, in April of 2000, I was at a town in, in northern Arizona doing a library event. And there was this woman standing at the back of the room. I, when you do in-person signings, you have to be aware of the people around you because some of them can be really kooks, like the guy who came up to me at a signing and said, are you the lady who writes the murder mysteries? I said, yes. He said, I've just been acquitted of murdering seven people. Do you want to write my book? No, thank you. So I developed situational awareness in those. And this woman standing with her arms crossed at the back of the room, who never smiled, who never nodded, when she recognized something I talked about in one of the books, I saw her and I thought, she's the problem. Sure enough, when I finished signing books, she was the last person standing in line. And, and the troublesome person will do that so they can have the author's undivided attention. So she stepped up to the table and she looked at me and she said, was your husband involved as a witness in a series of homicides that happened in Tucson in 1970? And I said, yes, he was. And with no further introduction, as though we had been having that conversation for 30 years, she said, my father was the man on the bulldozer. My mother was pregnant with me when that happened. She would never talk to me about it. What can you tell me? And that's the reason I never put real cases in my books, because real cases affect real people and their lives are forever changed as a result. Mm, yes. Look, this is fascinating. We're going to um, have to move on, though, because we're starting to run out of time, and I don't want to miss out on asking you about your current reading, turning to J.A. as reader. This is the binge reading, and you have a, a body of work that is just ideal for binge reading because when people get into one of these books, they just want to read the whole series. Do you read in that way yourself? And if so, who are your absolute favourite authors that you would always want to read? Perhaps that's a better way to put it. I, I like the Miss Julia series by M.B. Ross. I like the Dan Silva books. I like the Jack Reacher books. I, I read thrillers. It's hard for me to read someone else's book when I'm busy writing mine because I need to stay inside my characters' heads and scenes. So... I don't, as a writer, I don't do nearly as much reading as I used to. But, I, you know, people tell me, have been telling me, do you have Fritos? Have, have you ever heard of Fritos? They're corn chips. Oh, yes, I've heard of them, yeah. Well, people have told me reading my books is like eating Fritos because you can't read just woman. <laughs> <laughs> but during the pandemic, it has been really rewarding to hear from people who have read through my entire body of work while they've been under lockdown. Because the ancient sacred charge of the storyteller is to beguile the time. And this time we've all lived through in the pandemic has been time greatly in need of beguiling. And that's how I regard myself, more as a storyteller than as a novelist. Yes, that's, that's lovely. So what is 
happening for JA in the next 12 months? What projects have you got underway at the moment? Well, my Simon and Schuster, I've just finished writing the next Beaumont book. It's called Nothing to Lose. It'll be out in March. And this morning I heard from my editor at Simon and Schuster saying, okay, we're getting ready to design a cover for the next Alley book. Do you have an idea about a title or what's going to be in it? And fortunately, I couldn't sleep last night. And in the process of tossing and turning, I met up with the first scene in that upcoming book. It's going to start with it's going to start with a wedding. So I told my editor the beginning scene will be at a wedding, and I don't know what's going to happen after that. So why don't you design the cover to have a wedding on the cover? It's, that's a key phrase. I don't know what's going to happen after that. So I must ask it. Do you not plan ahead with what's going to happen with the story? Okay, here's the thing. I met outlining in Mrs. Watkins' sixth grade geography class at Greenway School. I hated outlining then. Nothing that has happened to me in the intervening decades has changed my mind about outlining. I write murder mysteries. I start with somebody dead. And I spend the rest of the book trying to figure out who killed them and how come. Or if I happen to know who the killer is, I spend the rest of the book trying to find out how people will figure it out and bring him to justice. So no, I never know what's going to happen inside my books when I start. It's amazing. I've spoken to other crime writers who do this too. It keeps it fresh for you all the way through, doesn't it? Well, I write for the same reason readers read, to find out what happens. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Now, your readers, do you like to meet with your readers and do you do much interaction with them online? Where can they find you if they want to be in touch? I publish a blog every Friday and it's sort of a window on what's happening in my life. This past week, my sister-in-law passed away after being married to my brother for 52 years. And so last week's blog was about losing it's When I was in college, I was 100 miles from home, and every week my mother would send me a letter telling me what was going on at home. And I sort of regard my weekly blogs as a way to stay in touch with my readers. My email address is listed under the contact me portion of my website, which is jajans.com. I answer all my own email. Uh, emails from my readers are important because my readers are my bread and butter business. And so no one else touches my email list. I'm the one who reads them. I'm the one who answers them. It's fantastic, Jay. I've loved being on tour and having a chance to interact in person with readers. And I I have a feeling that the pandemic has taken away the idea of in-person book tours forever. I think that's probably a dinosaur of the past. And I've learned to do things virtually with a camera as opposed to a live audience. But I really enjoy interacting with my readers and hearing what they think about what I've written. One woman wrote to me in Unfinished Business, there's a storyline that has to do with a character developing dementia. And one of my readers wrote to me saying how much she objected to how I handled that part of the story. Well, I regarded it as telling that part of the story. But I and I gave her what I'm afraid was sort of a flip response, sort of different strokes for different folks kind of 
But then she wrote again and said that she had just received a devastating, very similar diagnosis. And that broke my heart because no wonder she took that aspect of the book so very personally. Yes. And just to clarify, Unfinished Business is the latest Ellie Reynolds and Missing and Endangered is the latest Joanna Brady. We'll feature both of those books prominently in the show notes that we're going to be publishing with this episode. So it's been fantastic talking today, J.A., it really has. And I feel as if we had a real window into your life and into your creative process. So it's been a privilege. And thank goodness that painting didn't fall off the wall while we were talking. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, services at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.